Okay. Parshas Noach. Parshas Noach. I want to talk a little bit about the the Dor HaFloga, the Migdal Bovel, the Tower of Babel, which is, you know, a, a story that's so familiar to us that we sometimes forget to look at it again. Now, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. You have the sheets in front of you, so you know the answer. But do a test. Go and ask, you know, uh, an otherwise knowledgeable shul-goer who probably hasn't thought about Parshas Noach since last Parshas Noach, and ask them, how many psukim does the Torah uh, spend on the story of the Mabul, and how many psukim does the story spend on the story of the Migdal Bovel? It's remarkable. The story of the Mabul is spread over four long prakim. The Migdal Bovel is contained in nine psukim. Now, I remember being a child, going to Hebrew school, and being taught the Bible stories about Bereshit, and Noah, and the Ark, and the Tower of Babel, etc. The, the Migdal Bavel is always presented as the follow-up story to the Flood. These two stories of two different generations, even in Chazal, I mean, the Torah doesn't call it this, it's Chazal that call it the Dor HaMabul, and the Dor HaFloga, the generation of the flood and the generation of the dispersion, and the very language to refer to these two incidences by the names of their generations, sets up this comparison and this contrast, and that's the way we we always think about it. I won't read through that, the Psukim themselves, I I trust, are, are well known enough everybody, if, if not, do a quick scan of the, of the, the psukim. Uh, I mean, beyond Vayihi Kol Haaretz, Safa Achat Udvarim Achadim. Safa Achat Udvarim Achadim. That the entire land was one language and one davar. One word, one thing, one purpose. Rashi says, Ba'u Be'etza Achat. This group of people came with one scheme. And then Rashi tells us what the sin of the generation was. Because it's not perfectly clear in the Torah what their sin was. It's not perfectly clear at all. How do I know it's not perfectly clear? Because Rashi has to give us three different possibilities of what these folks did wrong. If it was perfectly clear, we would know it. So Rashi gives us three possibilities of what their sin was. The Midrashim, the Gemara, the other Mifforshim, pile on a number of others. And depending upon how you look at what it is that they were doing that was so wrong, will help you understand what's going on in the story and whether or not this kind of uh, notion that we have that the Dor HaMabul is the, is the append the Dor HaFloga, the, the story of the Migdal Bovel is the appendix to the story of the Flood is correct or not. Rashi says, Dvarim achadim bo beitz achad v'amru lo hem enoshi bo lo et ha'elyonim. Nalele rakia v'nase emanu milchama. The first analysis of their fault is that they made some kind of claim against God. Said it's not fair that he should, he should live upstairs in the penthouse and we should be stuck down here on earth. It's not fair that he should be, he should be up and we should be down. Let's go up to the heavens and we'll fight a war with him. Davar acher, a second interpretation. Al yichido shel olam. They made some type of claim against the against the the one, the Echad, Hashem Echad. In other words, apparently the building the tower was some type of attack on the idea of Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that God is one. That God is one. And the idea that there should be a tower, a very tall building, whether it literally could reach heaven or the Rosho Bashamayim means you know, a really tall building, a skyscraper doesn't actually scrape the sky. It's a metaphor. It means really, really tall. 
it is maybe it was a temple of Avodah that was coming to contrast against this, in their idea, mistaken notion of Hashem Echad. Davar Acher, third idea in Rashi, Dvarim Achadim, or there's a different version of Rashi, Dvarim Chadim. They said certain words, they said certain sharp words, Chad, sharp, piercing words. Amru, once every 1,656 now this is very interesting because the idea that like uh, things happen from time to time, in other words, you uh, you hang around long enough, you realize that once every 365 days or so, the seasons have come full circle. You hang around long enough, you look up at the sky, you realize once every 29, 30 days, the moon goes from being full to being full again, waxes and wanes in a cycle of 30 days. But you have to observe this a couple of times to notice that there's some kind of cycle going on. There's no cycle yet. There was 1,656 years since the creation of the world. There was a flood, Noah, the ark, the animals. We read the stories. Now it's been another period of 1,656 years, and they're afraid that there's going to be another flood. So the idea is that they're going to build the Migdal, and it's going to, it's going to be a support on, on the heavens, or, Rashi has this idea, uh, we'll, see, we'll see later on, there's this idea that, not that it's, it supports the heavens, but we're going to go up there, and we're going to fix it so that the water can't come down. We'll knock holes in it, and the water will drip down, we'll empty up, there must be a reservoir of water up there, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it down, tipa, tipa, and then there won't be a full, three ideas in Rashi for what's going on here. But Rashi at least in the third answer, is again making this connection between this story and the previous story of the flood. A few other highlights in Rashi, in Posuk Beis, that this place, Shinar, where they build the tower, this group of people, whether it was literally all of the people, the entire population of the known world, or it was just like a really large group, they travel from Kedem, from the east, and they're looking for a place to settle that can hold them all. They wanted one place that they could all live together. Velo matzu ela b'shinar. Pasuk vav, hein am echad v'sacha achat. And Pasuk vav says, v'yomer Hashem, Hashem, Hashem says, this is not good what they're doing. They're trying to build this tower. I'm not going I shouldn't stop them. They have one language. They have one, they have unity. They're one nation. They have one language. And, and, they're, and they're doing this? They're fighting against me? They're rebelling? Whatever it is, according to whatever interpretation you choose, they're doing something negative. What? I'm not going to stop them? So Rashi says, Hein am echad echad kol tuva zu yeshimahem. They have all the best things. A nation, one nation, under God, indivisible, indivisible but they, what do they do? They're under God, but they reject God. Right? Kol tuva yeshimahem. They have everything. Everything being Amechad Safafat, one language, one culture, one nation. And Bacholzot, in all cases, Sha'amechad Haim Safafat Lakulam Vidavazot. And they're doing this. In other words, it's not like they have troubles. It's not like they have bad things. They have good things. What are the good things? That they have this unity. That they have this unity. That they have this unity. Uh, and this unity, the last Rashi, in, in Posek Tet, Rashi says, again, making the link between the Migdal Bavel and the Mabul, 
Everybody knows this Rashi. Which was worse? Whose sin was worse? The generation of the flood or the generation of the tower? The generation of the flood didn't reject God. But these people, the folks of the Mikdah Bovel, they they are rejecting God. However, whichever interpretation you choose, and they, as it were, try to fight against Hashem, but nevertheless, the generation of the flood were, were, were wiped out. They all died except for the except for the eight people in the ark and all those animals. But nevertheless, the sin of the Migdal Bavel, the, the generation of Migdal Bavel, whose sin, Lichora, was worse, they weren't killed, they weren't wiped out. Why? What was the sin of the generation of the flood? They were thieves, they were mean to each other, they treated each other improperly, and that's why they were wiped out. Ve'elu, but the sin, the generation of the Migdal Bavel, despite the fact that they were apikorosim, they were fighting, they tried to fight a war against Hashem. Elu hayu noagim benehem. But they had unity, they had brotherhood, they had love. Shneemar safa achat udvarim achadim. Lamarta shesanui hamachlokit vegadol hashalom. And this shows you the power of unity, of love, of brotherhood, of peace, of tranquility. Because these people who were united, united to do bad things. But nevertheless, that unity is still somehow considered a merit to them. But the generation of the flood, whose sin was, at least on paper, less severe, looking at it objectively, they did not have unity. And therefore, they, they didn't even have that one, that one merit. So Rashi reads the story very much opposed to the story that comes before it. The Migdal Bovel is compared to the Dor HaMabul, the generation of the dispersion, is compared to the generation of the flood. There's an earlier Rashi, uh, there's an earlier Rashi where Hashem's saying we're, gonna, we're, we're going to mix up their languages. Their punishment is, of course, that they're dispersed, and their languages are, are mixed up. Instead of all speaking one language, they now start to speak different languages, so Rashi says that lo yishmu'u, they won't be able to hear each other, they won't be able to listen to each other, ze sho'el levena, ze mevitit. So they're trying to build, and as Rashi's explaining, it's like a technical punishment, the fact that their languages are all mixed up, that now you're going to speak one language, I'm going to speak another language, you're going to speak a third language, we can't communicate. So this project, this huge national project of building a tower that can reach the heavens, that can reach the heavens, um, like, it technically it won't work. Why? Because I'm going to ask for a hammer, and you're going to hand me a brick. Or no, I'm going to ask for a brick, and you're going to hand me the cement. Right? Because we, we won't have the same words for anything. So what's going to happen? So when you hand me the wrong thing, I'm going to take a hammer and bash in your head. So because we're all going to be busy bashing in each other's heads, Rashi says, it's not, we're not going to meet our deadline, right? You know, I guess it's like the way Kablanim work. Right? That you, can't, you can't get the job done in time because everybody's busy not sitting drinking the coffee, but they're busy bashing each other's heads in. Right? So this is a strange thing. What, like, why would that be? Like, I was, I was, uh, I was the other day here, davening Mincha, and there was a fellow outside who asked me, Parlez-vous français? Which is as much French as I speak. <laughs> so I had to say, look. <laughs> but I, I was able to say it with, like, that, that's the extent of my high school French. <laughs> right? But he needed, he, I think he needed, like, the best I could understand was he needed directions how to get someplace. So he came in, he dived in Mincha, and he asked around, even though there are a lot of French speakers here. Like so much so that the announcements from the shul, they send it out in Hebrew, in English, and in French. But there was nobody at Mincha who spoke French. So this poor fellow, who apparently didn't speak any of the other languages, he was stuck. So uh, I felt bad for him. Like I wanted to help him. I wanted to say, that guy, he speaks French. I didn't have a havamina to take a hammer and bash in his head. But the fact that we couldn't communicate 
means that we can't give. Why would I, if I ask for if I ask for the brick and you give me the the mortar, so like I'm going to have to point for the brick. Like, like, where does this idea come from that it's going to automatically lead to homicide? That's a question that we have to resolve. If you if you turn the page, not uh, page two, this question of what they were up to, what they were trying to do, is an interesting one. The Gemara in Sanhedrin and Kuftet says, "Dor haflaga ein lahem chelik olam habo." That's a Mishnah. It's a Mishnah in uh, in Sanhedrin, in Parachelik. My Ovid. Uh, what did they what did they do what was their what was their sin so Omri debei Rabbi Sheila nivne migdal v'nale l'rakia v'nake oto b'kardumot this is what the idea I was referring to a, a minute ago it's not it's not exactly what Rashi was saying as Rashi says we build they're going to build like a scaffold to hold up the heavens so the Gemara Rabbi Sheila said no they're going to build a tower they're going to get up to Shamayim literally and they're going to take and hammers and tools, and they're going to knock it up. Kadesh Yazovu Meimav, so that all the Mayim should trickle down. This is what I mentioned a moment ago, so that it can't all come down in one flood and and get us again. Even though Hashem had promised that He would never do that again, they didn't believe the promise. They're going to go and they're going to make an insurance policy against any subsequent flood. So this idea in the Gemara, I, I don't know whether the this this uh, Shayla thought that this is what they were trying to do, meaning this is what they might have done had they not been stopped, or this is what they thought they were going to do. In other words, that's an interesting question. Did they literally think that they could build a tower and get to Shamayim being what? Not the stratosphere, but the residence of God. You know, like... Kids think, like up there on a cloud, there's a palace, there's a castle, and in there is Hashem. This is an idea that children have to be disabused of. Right? But it's like this idea that there's heaven, there's earth, he's up there, he's not up there, he's not down here, he's, he's no place in the sense that he's, he's every place. He doesn't have any physical, corporeal uh, uh, properties. But this is like a notion. So did the door have flooded? Did they really think that they could get up there? This is a question. Right? And it's, first of all, First of all, did they think that they could literally get there? And the Meforshim that are trying to explain their position, are they saying, this is what they, or are there Meforshim that think that, like, there's a way to get to the heavens? In, in, right? So it's, 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 it's an important question. It's, if they thought, if the Dorha Flugger thought they could literally get to the heavens, so we know that they can't. Like, we know it's an impossible task. Even if in outer space, Lu Yitzur, it's not true. But Lu Yitzur, they thought that there's like a palace in heaven and God lives there and if we can only get there we can fight against him. Right? So they wouldn't have been able to reach that place. And we can't do it. In the 21st century, we can't do it. We don't have the technology to do it. They certainly couldn't do it. Right? So what does Hashem have to come and, and stop them for? And punish them? Lefech. Let them fuck Hashem. You want to do it? Do it. Start building your tower. Build it as tall as you want. Sooner or later, they're not going to get in place. Sooner or later, they're going to run out of bricks or run out of the raw materials to build the bricks because you can't build a tower that high. Certainly not in the pre-modern era where they don't know about digging a foundation to build a, to build a tower. That's why you had to build like the pyramids, which are really pretty tall for an ancient building. They had to have a very wide base to get that tall. Even so, they can only get so tall. They can only get so tall. So why doesn't Hashem just let them keep building? And sooner or later, they're going to get tired of it, and they're going to they're going to stop doing it. So many Meforshim think that the Dor Haflogah themselves didn't think they could literally get to heaven, but that Migdal Verosho Bashamayim was a is a metaphor for a really really tall building, the tallest building that they could make. And that's these other answers that the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, so Omar, uh, uh, um, the Gemara says about this idea that they literally, that they thought they literally could get to heaven. In in Eretz Yisrael, they laughed at that notion. They laughed at this at this uh, Babylonian that this the the the, the Amoraim Bavlim had this idea that the Dor Hamabel thought the Dor Haflaga thought they could literally get to heaven. So they said, no, it can't be that they thought that. 
right? In Cain, livnu echad b'turah. So first of all, they say the Torah itself is, indicates that they didn't literally think they could get to heaven. Because where do they start building the Migdal? In a valley. In a bika. Right? That's the, that's the Pesukim. They're living in a valley. So if I want to build a tower that's going to re- literally get to the heaven, where am I going to build it? I'm going to build it on a mountain that's going to give me, you know, a thousand meters elevation above sea level head start. But they're building it in a low place, in a valley. So it's obvious the very fact that they chose to build it there shows they didn't think they could literally get to heaven but that they were building a tall tower. And then the Gemara tries to explain exactly, you know, why they were building the tower, what the tower was. It was a symbol of Avodazar, it was a symbol of this. It was meant to be one thing or, or another. Interestingly, Rebionis and Ibschitz, Rebionis and Ibschitz, um has a comment. So this is something that I've, I've long heard about, but I never saw it. And I found it uh, in, in, in honor of the Shear. And on the website, if you that's not on the Makarot that you have, but if you go to the, the website uh, and download the Makarot, there's some supplemental things there. Uh, Rabbi Yonas Nabshitz has a work called the Tiferet Yehonatan. It's a, it's a work on Chumash. And he asks the following question. He says, it doesn't make sense. Why did they want this tower? The Torah says, the Torah says, um, uh, we're going to build a city with a tower whose top is in heaven lest we be dispersed around the entire earth so Rionis Napshit says in the pre-modern era in order to build a t- the taller the, the building was the wider the base had to be to support it Right? It's not like sky, our skyscrapers, where the footprint of the building right, is the same size as the top of the building. Sometimes they have like a little tower on top for direction. But think of, think of Zichronam Levracha, the Twin Towers. They were squares that just went up really high. The, 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 the footprint of the, the top floor was identical to that on the bottom floor because that's what modern architecture can do. But in the, in the pre-modern world, the taller the building, the wider the base. So if you were going to build something that literally was going to get to heaven, the base would have had to be so wide that the people that lived on the east would be so far removed from the people that lived on the west that Mimela they would be dispersed around the entire earth. And if the purpose of the Migdal was to bring them all together so that they wouldn't be dispersed. It's self-defeating. So he <laughs> says the following thing. He says the Migdal, it really, it wasn't that tall. It was uh, like a hollow tube, a kane, right? And it was filled with what he calls avkat srefa, which I think means gunpowder. And on top of this hollow tower was a sfina, and they would ignite it. And the Sfina would shoot up to heaven. And it would get to the moon. And it was an escape hatch. In other words, it was like Mig, it was like Tevat Noach 2. Instead of building a boat, because they were afraid there was going to be another flood, it was an escape capsule to get to the moon. He says, because maybe we can live on the moon. Right? Now he's writing this 100, uh, I don't know, 50 years before Jules Verne. Right? He's writing this 150 years before Jules Verne. Um, and he, this is what he says. It's a remarkable thing. But most Mephoshim do not present such um, fantastical interpretations as Urbionis and Ibschitz does. Right? As Urbionis and Ibschitz does. So if they were, if they were, if they were building a building that really wasn't going to be Bashamayim, it was just going to be a tall building with a reasonable base to keep everybody united, so then what's the problem? If not, if not like Rashi. So the Nitziv, this you have on page 3, 
the Nitziv, that Ravindra always tells us, the Nitziv is, is worthy of our attention, the great, the great uh, Rosh Hashiva of Volozhin, the end of the 19th century, turns his attention to Pashanut HaMikra and creates a very, um, a very innovative uh, interpretation on the Chumash. So the Nitziv says the following things. Look at Pasuk Aleph in the Nitziv, Safachat, from the end of the first line. V'zehu, this idea that they would live b'kibbutz echad, that they would live in, in one place, that all of the peoples of the earth would live in one place. Zehu neged ratzon Hashem. This is against God's will. Sh'amar, sh'artzu ba'aretz, ruba, hainu lehitalech l'arka l'rachva, ki l'shevet yatsra. So the very idea that they should all live together, that they should all live in one place, is against God's will. God created the world. He wanted the people to populate it. Right. I mean, I actually, the truth is I asked, I was talking about this with my son. I have a, a, a relatively young son, uh, 12 years old. And I asked him this question. I said, well, what was if they couldn't really get up to heaven? So what's the big deal? Right. Notice we have a, a little baby at home. So the baby has one of these play kitchen things, like one of these toys, plastic toys that look like a, look like a stove and look like a, like a pot, things like that. So when the kid is like playing with the stove and he turns the dial and it makes the clicking noise, like when you're turning on the fire, let him play all day. But he would actually go to the stove and try to turn it on. We'd stop him right away. So why don't we try to stop him when he's playing with the toy stove? Because he can't hurt himself. He can play with it all day long from today until tomorrow. It'll never start a fire. So the Migdal Bovel is like the toy stove. They could build and build and build and build. They're never going to get to heaven. So why does Hashem have to stop them? Right? So my son said something very interesting, which is basically what the Nitziv is saying. Also the Ran says something. Somebody says, because, like, you know, you have to do things. Like if every, the whole world would be busy trying to, it would take the whole world, the manpower of the whole world to build such a thing. Right? So everybody would starve to death. They wouldn't, right? Nobody would be farming. Nobody would be raising sheep and cattle and making hamburgers and other things. And, and, and that's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants us to get out there and do it. So he said in his own language, you know, what, uh, what the Nitziv says telegraphically. Dvari um, Machadim, from like the third line, Delomishum Hatvarim Hitorer HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It wasn't the content of what these folks were saying. Ki im b'shvil shahayu achadim. It's not what they were saying. And the Nitziv is walking a very different line than Harashi painted it. It's not what they were saying. It's like, like your mother used to say, or my mother used to say. It's not what you say, but how you say it. It's not what they were saying, the content, but the fact that they were dvarim achadim. There was one party line. Yiyu mashiyu. imki shum avon. There's no inherent sin in this idea that we're going to build a very tall tower. On the contrary, unity of purpose is generally a good thing. But in this case, But their unity of purpose was directed towards something very negative. What was so negative? So he's going to go on to explain. It's not like Rashi. Go skip down to Pasuk Dalid. The Roshoba Shamayim, the top of the tower gets to heaven. lo So he says, obviously. Obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally that there'd be only one city for the whole world, that the entire population of the world would fit into, into, into one city. Um, but what? That there'd be a capital. There'd be one place and all of the surrounding cities and villages would be subservient, would be ruled from that one central capital. Um, and from the tower, you'd be able to keep lookout. You'd be able to keep an eye on all of the surrounding villages and towns. Big Brother can be watching you from there. 
to make sure that in the outlying town they're not separatists they're not looking to break away they're not differing from the party line therefore it had to be really tall it was the KGB right I mean now we wouldn't say it'd have to be really tall we would say they'd have to dig tunnels underneath to plant the listening devices right or, or literally as as Orwell painted in in, 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 19, in 1948 he wrote 1984 about what was happening in 1948 you know the telescreens you know everywhere you went you all went you all went to high school everybody read 1984 right? certainly I did in high school you had to read it um, there were the telescreens every place watching and recording and everything everything that you everything that you do uh, the Nitziv goes on, Amnam And if we can understand this idea, why it would be dangerous for somebody to for somebody to leave and to go to a different place. God forbid somebody should think something else. Somebody should deviate from the party line. That's the Dvarim Achadim, the Safa Achat. And anybody that deviated from the unity of purpose, the party line, and anybody that would deviate from the party line, they whack him. They kill him. Like they did to Avraham Avinu. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Nimtza hayu dvarim achadim shebeneihem l'rotz sheechlitu laharog et mi shelo yachshov keotam. Right? What was the dvarim achadim? What was the unity of purpose? which in and of itself isn't a bad thing to have unity of purpose. But here, they're united with the idea that everybody has to think and believe and, 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 and practice and subscribe to one party line, to one ideology, and anybody that differs from it, or thinks they can separate themselves physically or ideologically, we're going to kill them right away. That's what it is. Like they try to do to Avraham Avinu. And that's what he says, go back to Pasuk Gimel. The Torah describes Vinisrafa Lasrefa. They get to this they get to this valley and they decide to build the tower, but there's no natural rocks. And it's here in, in Yerushalayim if you want to build a big building, let's say like Beit HaMikdash, like I mean later on, like Marat HaMachpelah. What do you do? You start digging. If you dig deep enough, you don't have to do that much, you're going to find big rock. You can quarry out rocks and you can build tall buildings, but they didn't have that in Shinar. They had to make bricks in a furnace. In a furnace. So the, the Nitziv says, Kol ha-mikra ein bo inyan shirui lahudia le-inyan ha-sipur. Right? The whole story, Migdal Bovel, nine psukim. One of those psukim gives you the recipe for how they made the bricks. What he needed for? What do I care whether they built with stone or with bricks or with wood? What do I care? Right? It says that Hanoch built a city. He was the first person to build this in Perik, in Perik Dalid, I think. Right? Hanoch built a city. Torah doesn't tell you how he built the city. It doesn't tell you who his Kablan was. Doesn't tell you whether they use these kinds of workers or those kinds of workers. Why does the Torah need to spend one out of nine psukim telling you the recipe for the bricks that they used to make the Migdal Bovel? Right? That they had to that they had to fire the bricks in this kiln, in this furnace. Previously. In other words, it's the hint that the Torah puts in from which Chazal determined, no, in other words, they had to have these fiery furnaces. And the story of Avram Avinu, go back to the first page, right? It's the story of Avram Avinu, but it's in our Pasha. 
it's not in Lech Lecha, it's the end of Noach. Parshas Noach ends with the story of Avram Avinu, the birth of Avram Avinu. Right? What's the birth of Avram Avinu? Avram Avinu? Right, this Gemara Navodah Zarah on page 2 just reminds us, at least according to Chazal, that Avram Avinu lives at the time of the Migdal Bavel. That Avram Avinu lives at the time of Migdal Bavel. Uh, but the, in, in uh, the end of our parish, it says, Ve'elot told Terach, Terach holidet Avram, et Nachor ve'et Haran, v'Haran holidet Lot, v'yamat Haran al pnei Terach Aviv. Rashi tells you, what does it mean that Haran died al pnei, al pnei Terach Aviv? That Haran, Avram's brother, died while their father was still alive. But then he brings the Midrash. It's a, such a famous Midrash that many people think it's actually in the Torah. But it's not in the Torah, it's in the Midrash, as quoted by Rashi. You know, many people, many educators get very animated by this problem. The idea that there are people, there are children who think that this story is actually written in the Chumash, and not merely a, a, a Midrash, but that is, that is the fact. It's a Midrash, it's not in the Chumash. But he tells you the story, everybody knows it. Midrash Agadah Yeshomim Sha'al Yedei Aviv Mit. Right, that Haran died, uh, you know, on, uh, through his father on account of his father was responsible for his death. Shekibel Terach al Avraham b'no lifnei Nimrod al shekitet et Salamav. Right, you know the story. Avram goes, he breaks the idols. So his father Terach, what does he do? Complains. He doesn't complain. He hands him over to the authorities. It's like 1984. The, the children rat out on the parents who are not loyal party members. And, Nim, and Nimrod throws him into the fiery furnace. Haran, his brother, sitting there and he's on the fence and he says, well, you know, they're going to find, they're going to ask me who I am. So if Avram comes out, I'll say I'm with him. And if he gets burnt up, I'm going to say I'm with Nimrod. Avram, it's a miracle. Avram comes out of the fiery furnace and they say to uh, and what's with you? Whose team are you on? So he says, obviously, I'm on So they throw him in, but the nace doesn't happen for him because he didn't really believe. And he, gets, and he gets burned up. And he gets burned up. That is the Medrash. That is, that is Avram Avinu. And uh, Nitziv says the story of Avram Avinu, it's kind of built in between the lines to the story of the Migdal Bavel. Right? The hint to it is through the bricks, the fiery, the fiery furnace. Right? It's a society. How many bricks did they have to make? How tall was the tower? I don't know. You know, you have the famous picture. This is the famous uh, Brugel picture, the 16th century, the most famous rendering of it. But if you, you know, if you go online and you just Google Tower of Babel, right? You'll find there's some many good, very, some very good websites. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a pretty decent website that has uh, like an index to all the art of the Old Testament. Right? And you can go and you can punch in any peric, and it'll give you links to all of the classic art depicting, if there is, depicting it. So if you go, uh, you punch in, you know, Genesis chapter 11, you'll find this, this story of Migdal Bavel, you know, depicted in, in classic, you know, medieval and modern art, you know, this is the most famous. Like, that's a different kind of sheer, where we, like, look at slides of all these paintings and see, like, how they painted it. But how many bricks do you think? I mean, how big is a brick? I don't know. Let's say it's like our bricks. How many bricks would you need? You'd need, you'd need millions and millions and millions and millions of bricks to build a building this tall. Even to, even to start working on the project, right, you'd need a supply of many bricks. And that's the story of the Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. Right, the Pirkei de, I mean, you all know the story. You don't have it on the sheet, but the Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer in Perak Kaf Dalit, in the Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, it says that they built it. They built it so tall that after a while, it took. By the time they were building the upper levels, it would take the worker a long time to get up there, right, and bring the supply of bricks up to the top. So, I mean, you all know this. Uh, you all know this. Uh, um, this, this uh, midrash says, "Im nafal adam the mate. If a person fell off the upper levels and died, lo hayu samim levelav. Nobody would even pay attention. V'im nafla levena. But if a brick fell from the upper levels before it was placed, 
היו יושבים ובוכים ואומרים, מתי תעלה אחרת תחתיה? They cry and weep and wail over this one brick that fell. And what happens? What happens? עבר אברהם בן תרח. אברהם is walking by, and he sees, I guess it was like a tourist attraction, right? Like, I don't know, like now people go down to ground zero to see what they're doing there, what they're building there. He's walking by, and he sees it. He sees there are people falling off the top levels, and nobody cares. And the bricks, people are weeping and wailing over each brick. V'ra'otam bonim et ha'ir v'et ha'migdal v'kilalam b'shem Hashem, b'shem Elokim. And he curses them. He says, these people, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them. If you look, if you look on page two, the Ramban, the Ramban also tells the story, the Ramban also tells the story a little differently than Rashi. The Ramban says something about Avram Avinu. This is on the, on the Pasuk of Avram Avinu, the same Pasuk that Rashi tells us the story of the Kivshana Eish. So the Ramban doesn't accept the story of the Kivshana Eish with two hands. He says, Ki Avram asher nolad bekuta chalak al dat Avraham, or Avram, he disagreed with the party line. He disagreed with what everybody thought. Shahayu Ovdim Hashemesh. They were worshipping the sun. Avram disagreed. Vinatan HaMelech. The Melech, according to the Midrash, is Nimrod. And as the Midrash, and Rashi goes like this, the Midrash tries to tie everything together. That Nimrod is the king who commissions the building of the tower. Nimrod is the king that throws Avram into the fiery furnace. Avram is there at the construction of the tower. The story of Avram Avinu, when they're there dealing with Avram Avinu, this, this renegade, you can hear the sounds of the clanking of the hammers because the tower is being built in the background. Right? This is the picture that the Midrash paints. Right? The Midrash wants to, to tie all these things together. Natan HaMelech Oto Beveta Sohar Nimrod puts him into, the, into prison. Right? Rashi doesn't have it this way. But the Midrash has it this way. That they, they bring this renegade, uh, this renegade, this dangerous uh, uh, thinker, right? They bring him to the palace and they lock him up and they're, what are they doing? They're debating him, right? And we have, you know, like you know these stories of Avram's debate trying to show the flaws of Avodah Zarah. They're debating him. They're trying to, what are they trying to do? Right, yeah, it was like Winston Smith, right? It's 1948, it's 1984, right? They take him into the, into the, um... It was similar to the Ramban. The Ramban knows what this is like, right? When is the Ramban writing this? No, after he gets to Eretz Yisrael. Right, in other words, the Ramban writes the parish. I mean, it was probably based on things he had said and thought and written beforehand, but the parish is written once he gets to Eretz Yisrael. Why does Avram leave Spain? Why does the Ramban leave Spain? Yeah, because he knows what he's talking about here. He was once there debating the Christians, right? In a debate which he can't win, right? Because it's foreordained. So he leaves Spain at the end of the 12th century to come to Eretz Yisrael. And what happens when you have a dangerous thinker? He's afraid, the king is afraid that this, this dangerous thinker, this renegade thinker is going to pollute the rest of the population, that these very dangerous ideas are going to get out there. He's going to, uh, he's going to, right, cause them to stop their idolatrous beliefs. So what do you do with a dangerous thinker? You exile them. So the communists had the gulag, the type of internal exile, because they had a country that was big enough that you could exile somebody I don't know how many, six or seven time zones away, they're still under your thumb, but they're isolated they can't hurt anybody so what does the Ramban say? the Ramban is, I mean, it's, it's, you don't need to be Sigmund Freud to realize there's like a level of biography being worked out here 
is this guy, he's got dangerous ideas, we got to get rid of him. So Nimrod exiles him, Nimrod exiles him so that he won't pollute the population. So that Avraham's going towards Eretz Yisrael, according to the Ramban, Avraham's bags were already packed. And he'd already bought his bus ticket, or his camel ticket. And he was already walking in the right direction <coughs> when the tzivui comes, lech lecha me'artzicha. It's an interesting idea. It's, it's counter to the way that we normally like recall the story, even though the psukim support it. We think lech lecha me'artzicha. There's Avim Avinu. He's sitting at home. He's doing whatever he's doing. And he gets the phone call. Here's the tzivui. you got to go to Canaan. Avram was already on the way, right? The Ramban emphasizes. And why was he on the way? Because he was running away from the regime of Nimrod. He was running away from the society of the Migdal Bavel. He was running away when he was cast out. Well, he was cast out, and as if we, if you read, I'm going to skip it, but as if you keep reading the Ramban, not only does he realize he has to go, his father, Terach, also joins him. In other words, the father, if you, if you merge the Midrashim, the Medrash, and, and the Ramban together and paint one larger story, the father, Terach, uh, rats on his son, turns him over to the authorities. Right, usually it was the other way around in the totalitarian. It was the children that ratted on the parents. But, uh, but here, Terach uh, hands, in, hands in Avram to the thought police, Avram survives the Kivishana Esh. Terach, I'm now putting in some psychological reading here. Terach sees what kind of society is this? And leaves with Avram. My father in law is Zichrona Levracha. Uh, my mother in law is here tonight, visiting from America. My father in law is Zichrona Levracha. He used to have this joke that he was the founding president of the Terach Society in America, the parents whose kids all went on Aliyah, <laughs> right? Lech lecha me'artzecha right? But uh, my wife used to like to point out that, at least according to, at least according, but probably even the Pshat, Terach himself does tshuva, and at least is, is on the way. Um, I think at least according to one Medrash, Terach. The Well, in a, when precisely the tzivui comes, no, did he discover God already? Yeah, that's how he got into the Kivishan Eish. Yeah. But in other words, why does he have to go, he discovered Hashem, but he didn't know that he had to go to Canaan. No, that's for sure. Right. That's why there was nothing about. Right. But uh, as far as um, Avram Avinu is concerned, he was uh, so disgusted with them, and he was seeing that they were working against God and everything. He knew already that, that they were not uh, following uh, right. God's uh, teaching that to have the right. uh, resulting. Right. So, and it's if we read it like the Nitziv, the Midrash, and the Ramban together, he believes that, but what? You're Natan Sharansky. You're a refusenik. Yeah, right? Now, he couldn't leave. There's a big tower with a searchlight at the perimeter. Nobody can leave. And if you think differently, or if at least you publicly think differently, we're going to lock you up. And if we can't re-educate you, and if we can't brainwash you, and if we can't, what are we going to, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. But what? There was a miracle. So the Ramban says, maybe it was a miracle that he came out of Kim Shanesh, but you don't have to believe literally in that Midrash, says the Ramban. Maybe Nimrod just thought, if we kill him, you know, it'll be worse. It'll be, you know, like this, that idea, like if you kill him, he'll become a martyr. It'll inspire others. So the best thing to do is just to exile him. Right? So he's, somebody gives him the boot and then he starts walking on his own two feet as he's, as he's going and he, you know, and the ideas, the ideas further developed. This idea, this idea of painting, and it's interesting. In other words, the Ramban and the Nitziv live in very different contexts. We did this once before in Parshat Shmot. I think it might have been the last time I was here with you. We actually also did a comparison of the Nitziv and the Ramban. They're so different and they're so so similar. The, the Nitziv lives in the 19th century in uh, in in Lithuania. 
the Ramban lives in the 12th century in in uh, in or in the 13th century in uh, in in Spain and then here in 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 uh, in Israel. Um, one's a Rishon, one's a, one's a late Achron, but yet some of the issues that disturb them are the same. The Nitzv is living under a type of a totalitarian regime in Tsarist Russia. Uh, we, we always think that communism was a totalitarian regime, right? But, uh, and maybe that causes some type of nostalgia for whatever the communist revolution came to replace, but the people that they replaced were equally as bad, um, equally as authoritarian, totalitarian. The Ramban, in a different type of way, uh, also lives in a regime that tries to, right, what, what was the Inquisition all about? The idea that there's one pure doctrine and we have to be very, very cautious about anybody that disagrees with that and we have to either forcibly convert them or at least get them to shut up. And This idea of a totalitarian regime um, poisons all of society. That's the meaning of the line in the Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. That for a brick they would, they would weep and wail, but for a person nobody pays attention. Because in such a society, there's such a, a dehumanizing component to living under that type of regime that somebody dies, you know, right? Like that's in a, Orwell, becomes an unperson, right? In other words, if you're in 1984, uh, you know, the narrator describes it, there are people that like suddenly they disappear. And the Ministry of the Ministry of Truth, which is really a Ministry of Propaganda, where he works, where Winston Smith works, their job was they'd then go back retroactively. I mean, now it would all be on the web. It would be even easier. They'd go back and they would literally rewrite every newspaper so that there'd be no reference to such a person. Like they don't exist. Somebody falls off the top of the building, you don't have to It's like they don't exist. There's this dehumanizing component of it all. But for the brick, for the project, for the national project... That, that we're undertaking, that's kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's why when there's somebody that you can't communicate with, well, if I can't communicate with them, if they don't speak my language, they're probably a very dangerous influence. So I'm better off just bashing in their head. The, the, uh, fear, xenophobia, a fear of foreigners, Somebody's going to come in with a different idea, a different way of thinking. This whole idea of Safa Achat, which Rashi, again, Rashi reads this all very differently. Rashi's idea that Safa Achat is in and of itself a value, but in this case a value turned to evil purposes. So maybe the Nitziv is saying, no, Safa Achat is no good. This is a machlokis. This is a machlokis amongst the linguists about the degree to which language shapes the way that we think. You know, uh, Noam Chomsky is, you know, that great lover of Zion. Uh, is, uh, you know, but if, if you want to talk about linguistics, uh, Chomsky is, you know, it's hard to avoid him. So Chomsky is of the idea that like all language, all language is really the same. Like there's like a deep uh, structure to all language. And... Uh, you know, that's like, you know, like, uh, Star Trek is like that. Like, in the world of Star Trek, like, how do you, what happens? They land on a planet they've never been to. They encounter, a, uh, they seek out new life and new, uh, new life forms. Uh, new, new life and new, new civilizations. And, like, how do they all speak? Well, they all speak because it's a TV show, so they all have to speak English. Otherwise, the plot <laughs> doesn't get off the ground. Right? But within the internal logic of how Star Trek works, they have something called the intergalactic translator. That if, if, you know, you, we land on your planet and you speak a few sentences into this intergalactic translator, right, and it can punch out your language because it can automatically decipher that deep structure, the Chomskyan structure. But Chomsky might not be right. There's actually a lot of, there's a lot of very interesting brain research. There's a lot of very interesting brain research on, on the degree to which language really shapes thought. And depending upon the language you speak, it influences your patterns of thought. Chomsky thought that's not true. And, uh, I mean, if you Google this stuff, you find it. There's this, uh, there's this Professor Boroditsky, B-O-R, 
O-D-I-T-S-K-Y, Lira, L-E-R-A, Boroditsky at uh, Stanford, who's doing this really interesting stuff. I mean, you know, a little Googling and the help of Wikipedia, you can find, you can find anything. This idea that the language you speak influences the way you think. Now, Orwell, Orwell was not a Chomsky. And there's the whole idea of, new, of, of uh, look, I had, I had the flu. A, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had that flu. I was, I was in bed for four days. And I reread 1984. So I, I just have to reveal all my cards to you. It's not that I remember everything I read in the ninth grade. But I just, it happens that I just reread it. In the back of 1984, there's an appendix where he explains the principles of newspeak. Where he explains the principles of newspeak. Look, it's, it's, worth, it's worth reading something. It's worth reviewing certain things. So there's this scene there where uh, Winston Smith is talking to, you know, there in the Ministry of Truth, and he's talking to a guy that's working on the new edition of the Dictionary of Newspeak. The idea being that they had to, they rewrote the language. And this fellow who's working on the dictionary, is what, what, do, what do people that work on dictionaries usually do? They're adding words. Like every year, this is like, you know, like you can, you can find it. They, every year, the, uh, the OED adds certain, you know, like to get your word into the OED. You know, so in the last edition of the OED, they didn't have words like blog. And now the word is there, right? It, it, made, it makes the cut. There are new words added all the time. But in Newspeak, there are words being eliminated all the time. So this fellow says, says that Newspeak, it's the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Because if you live in a society where there's something called thought crime, so what does language do? If you get rid of a word like freedom or liberty, if you, if you live in a culture where there's no word in your language for such concepts, it tends to discourage you from thinking about such things. And it just seems obvious that the scope of language that the scope of language shapes thought and shapes and shapes uh, and shapes the the and shapes the the society. Um, so that I mean, you know, everybody that writes about this, you know, talks about, about how propaganda works, right? The Nazis certainly Nazis certainly use this. Um, um, uh, you know, Hannah Arendt writes about this in her book on totalitarianism. Right? This is obvious. What's... I mean, the Nitziv isn't saying this. I don't want to put too many words in his mouth. But I think this is what he's describing. Um, uh, what's the problem with Dvarim Achadim? That there's only one way to think. There's only one way to speak. There's only one vessel that can contain our thought. And what happens? Avram Avinu comes and he smashes that idol. He doesn't just smash the the physical idols, he smashes this ideological idol that there's only one way to see things. And he sees things differently. And then he sets out on his journey because he's cast out by people that can't contain that way of thinking. And he begins his great project of bringing Hashem Echad to the to the world. Um, that that idea of Avram Avinu, the reading of the Ramban, the reading of the Nitziv, so different than that of Rashi, makes us reevaluate our Hebrew school notions. The story of the Migdal Bovel is not the coda to the story of the Dor Hanabu. It's the preface to the story of Avram Avinu. That's what it's doing here between the two stories. We always thought Dor HaMabel, Dor HaFloga, two bookends, right? These kinds of, uh, I don't know, mythic tales of the, of the early history before Parshas Lech Lecha. Like the Torah gives you two chapters, for two, two Parshios for free, the background story, the, the, the prequel. But really everything starts, I mean, Rashi's first question in Chumash is based on that notion that the stuff in the beginning is, is somehow introductory and we have to justify it. So I can understand why from Avim Avinu, but when you're gracious and, and 
of Babel and all the stories of all those generations in between the Migdal Bavel. So the Migdal Bavel is there because you have to understand what was before the advent of Avram Avinu. The world with which Avram Avinu breaks. Now you have to do a lot of reading between these nine lines, <coughs> these nine psukim, in order to understand that. That's what Chazal, that's what Rashi, that's what the Ramban, that's what the Nitziv are doing. They're filling in the lines. But if you read it in that, in that uh, spirit, then you understand that the Migdal Bavel is coming not to end the story of the flood, but to open everything that's going to come from now on in, the great epic tale of Avraham Avinu.